Welcome back to Humans of Purpose. I'm your host, Mike Davis, and each week I bring you conversations with local purpose-driven leaders. Leaders creating social impact through their work and inspiring positive social change across a wide variety of sectors. Sit back, tune in, and enjoy the next 40 minutes guaranteed to inspire you with our signature blend of wisdom, experience, and banter. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. You know, I have a saying that everyone you meet is your mirror. And I think if you arrive somewhere, you know, that's kind of arrogant, people will try and take you down a peg. And then you can have some nasty experiences. Not all my experiences were positive, but I think overall, I think humans are just actually really fantastic people. And especially the further you go from somewhere that's a touristy place, the least touristy it is, the kinds of people become. And I think, you know, with countries like Myanmar that's now kind of sealed off from the world, again, that's actually really sad because it's, as humans, we need to have contact with each other. Welcome back to another action-packed episode of Humans of Purpose. First off, a big thanks to our season sponsor, Neon Treehouse, for all their wonderful social media support. My guest today is Jessica Muddit. Jess is a superb author and journalist. We met a little while ago whilst collaborating on an article she wrote on networking. Jess is passionate, articulate, and most importantly, she writes about what she loves, experiences traveling in Southeast Asia. She's also written extensively as a freelancer for top publications, including Forbes, The Economist, BBC, CNN, GQ, The Guardian, and more. Jess is one who has certainly made a habit of taking the road less travelled, and her first book, A Home in Myanmar, documents her time living in Yangon, Myanmar for four years, which received rave reviews. She's currently working on her new book, Once Around the Sun, due for release in early March next year, which will document her year setting off from Melbourne for a year of solo backpacking through Asia. Jess's books are a call for us to embrace travel and all that it offers us. It's a reminder that travelling is inherently valuable. It exposes us to different ways of thinking and living and can give you the gift of new and fresh perspectives on life. If you'd like to get your hands on a free copy of Our Home in Myanmar, I have a few free download codes to give away and these will be sent to the first 10 subscribers to The Hedgehog's Nest upon release of this podcast. The Hedgehog's Nest is my weekly email blog that goes direct to your inbox just once per week where I unpack some of the big ideas that come up during Humans of Purpose episodes. Once I've got your sign-up email, I'll simply reply email the first few sign-ups, the free download codes to get a copy of Jess's audiobook via Spotify. To do so, all you need to do is hit the link in our show notes or head direct to hedgehogsnest.substack.com and hit subscribe. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jess as much as I did. Jess, great to be with you finally. How are you traveling? I'm well, Mike. I really am. Yeah. It's been so nice getting to know you through your freelance work mainly, which is superb. Uh, you've written for some really top publications, but I love speaking with journos. I love speaking with writers. But today we're going to talk a little bit about your uh, career as an author, which is exciting for me. Yeah, wonderful. So, yeah. And so, um, look, you've got a kindred spirit here and a fellow traveler. I'm wearing my best uh, Hawaiian shirt and often refer to myself as the president of Polynesia when I wear this short sleeve shirt. So, 
<laughs> You've got a good mate and a kindred spirit in the love of travel and can't wait to talk to you about that. But maybe before we get into that, let's hear a little bit about your um, early days of your career. And perhaps a sort of a framing question might be, um, before you loved travel, when did you know or have a sense that you wanted to be an author? I've always loved writing all through school, as I think most people do. Um, and I, but I, I had a very strong belief that I would never make a living from it. I tried to get into journalism at RMIT and I didn't get in. And that was sort of the be all and end all. And so at that point I gave up, which was silly of me. Um, and so I was always tr- trying to think, how can I subsidize my writing habit? You know, what do I, how many hours do I have to work in an office? so that I can write on the side because I only ever imagined it taking up that much space in my life. So I had I went and did a law degree and an arts degree and then the prospect of studying law did not appeal at all. So I'm not actually sure what I was doing in the first place. Um, <laughs> and that was when I set off overseas. And so the book, this my second book is about that year that I went overseas Knowing, I mean, I, I love Asia. I'd been a couple of times with my parents, but this was when I truly, you know, fell in love with it. Um, and then that threw up all other kinds of questions. How am I going to be able to subsidize traveling and writing in my life? These two things that, you know, I will dry up if I don't get to do them. That's so cool. I love the convergence there, sort of like naturally positions you to be a traveling writer or a travel writer, doesn't it? Yeah, it did. And I just, I felt really trapped because at the end of the 12 months, I was bound for London. My parents were there meeting me. I knew that an office awaited for me. And even though London would be such a cool city, it just filled me with dread. And so my life has been a process of working out how to get to do what I want with my life. Um, And I have, I have worked that out happily. And it's a journey, obviously, but like maybe a starting point, what was it, what what appeals to you about Asia or what was the um, driving connection there or, or the link to to make you want to make that your sort of travel writing uh, base or experiential uh, sandpit? Well, funnily enough, the sunshine, and I know that sounds really shallow, but you know, <laughs> Melbourne's winters used to just brutal, sad, so brutal, so <laughs> long, bitterly cold, playing hockey and feeding my horse in the rain, and I just have always loved tropical weather. I think I may even have, there's a condition for people who have cold fingers and toes all the time. I think oh, yeah. I that. My wife's got that. Yeah, and I was just driven into the sunshine. My second book is called Once Around the Sun, and I tried for 365 days to stay in summer. Um, and so Asia, you know, is on our doorstep, and I'd been to Malaysia with mum and dad, and thought that was pretty incredible. So it's kind of seen the natural point. I was a solo female, so I thought from a crime point of view, I'm likely to have an easier time. And and then it was just the beauty that I fell in love with and the culture and the, you know, the the people are so graceful and kind and um seem to have a lot of dignity even in tough circumstances and I really admired that and the more you know like an onion you start to unpeel one layer and then you want to unpeel the next and so I kind of had a patchwork of Southeast Asia and then South Asia and then I ended up returning to Bangladesh because that gave me another piece of the puzzle after being to Pakistan, India, Nepal and then Bangladesh was kind of uh, getting to know that was really exciting as well. 
It's amazing. And maybe just coming back a little bit, I mean, I'm curious about how you dealt with that RMIT rejection and whether that made you feel like a strong resolve to continue because it was a deep burning passion or or how you reflected on that at the time. Because I think a step out like that early on can make you go one of two ways. Either you give up um, and, and you just say, oh, clearly RMIT doesn't think I'm good enough. I'm not. Um, mm. Or you went, you go the way you went, and which is proving yourself and and taking that longer road and maybe the, the road less traveled. So curious, you, you're sort of thinking and your, your reflective process there. Well, I mean, it was a big deal to me. I desperately wanted to get in. I remember I was on holidays in Magnetic Island with mum and dad, um, and I went across to do the um, to do the exam because it's a two or three hour exam on mainland, and then found out, you know, a month or several weeks later, and I was crushed. I was really, really disappointed. But I'd kind of grown up believing that it was pretentious to want to be a writer, and that it wasn't really something that was in my world of possibilities. And so I dismissed it as, and then it was so funny. I mean, I dated journalists and stuff. My self-awareness was so low. And I remember my boyfriend at the time, his flatmate was the ABC newsreader. She said, you should be a journalist. You just ask questions all the time. And I was, and I just brushed her off. (laughs) So well qualified to say that to me. And I just brushed her off and didn't give it a second thought until I had to face the facts that I wanted to be a journalist. And you must have known that because when you're making decisions like working in office jobs that you really don't want to do to feed what you refer to as a habit, it's funny because it's just sort of parallels to me a lot. I I love stand-up comedy and a lot of stand-up comedians are exactly the same. You know, they're sort of like working jobs so that they can do what they want to do to make that maybe their vocation or their calling. Um, and, And they're sort of comfortable to do that for a while, but then, you know, the goal is really to make that the main thing, isn't it? It is. You want your, I mean, it wasn't, I can't say it was a side hustle because it wasn't even that. It was, you know, a nightly reading habit that would make me tired for work. And I I would enter writing competitions and never win. I can't write fiction to save myself anyway. Um, And so I just, I just, and I also chose jobs that were particularly depressing. Um, After I finished uni, I worked in a shoe shop, like a skate, skateboard shoe shop, And then that was just over summer. And then I worked um, at a publishing company, which should be great, but I was the lowest rung of the ladder. So I was literally carrying reams of paper, doing Excel spreadsheets. And part of the reason was I didn't want to get attached to my job. I didn't want to feel that I was leaving anything behind while I was saving money to go away. Um, But it was, you know, that was a long year of saving money, moved back to mom and dad's house and stuff. And so, and then when I was traveling, I was like, how can I how can I get to stay in Asia and travel? And so I thought I could teach English because that is something that, you know, is quite well paid. Maybe, you know, I'd get free time to write, but it, it wasn't, I wasn't, I didn't have my heart in it. And you're never going to follow anything that your heart isn't completely in. Hmm. So then how do you manage to fund yourself while you're away? Because, I mean, you're away. I have two questions, really. I, I suppose we'll start with that one. But because you were away for such a long time, how did you make manage to make ends meet? Did you have enough runway or enough saved up to sort of make that go the distance? I moved back to mum and dad's house and I saved for over a year. So mm-hmm. I only had like $17,000. I was living off peanuts. And so, of course, you end up in some ridiculous situations through a lack <laughs> of money overseas. I was very, very careful with my money. You know, I stayed in dormitories if if, the, if if it was an expensive city or something like that. 
And I just, you know, ate lots of street food and things like that. And and that's the whole, that's another sort of current running through the book is you can take it too far as a backpacker, that's saving money. Like it can become, it's like you're trying to game game the system or something. And you can, you know, horrible, some people I met were really, they were just, just tough bargainers and stuff and like local people need a livelihood too and mm. You know, so you have to be careful not to become obsessed with it, but it was definitely, you know, to keep my money lasting. Oh, I did also write children's stories, so I kept that gig going while I was overseas, but that was just a couple of hundred dollars a month. Mm. But so it's it's all a bit fascinating. And and so do you start to, when you're away for such a long time and you're immersing yourself in a different world, how does it kind of mesh or how does it change your perception of reality? Do you sort of become more comfortable being away and traveling than you do at home? Or how do you reconcile that? I really enjoy being a minority. And I know that sounds really strange, but, and I don't know what it is about it that I enjoy, but I, I don't like, I love going overseas and being in a different culture that's not my own. I just find it so interesting because you're watching a society that's not your own society. And none of the preconceived behaviors or habits that you bring as a Westerner really have any, have any currency. So it's about how you can blend in and what you can learn. Um, and while still retaining your own identity, I just, I just find it so interesting. Like for me, a perfect day is waking up in a foreign city and going out on foot and exploring it and just looking at every last detail. I love that. And do you ask a lot of questions when you're there as well? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I really do. Yeah, yeah. Um, you got me thinking about sort of the the nature of travel and why humans travel. Because you know, hundreds of years ago, humans would very rarely travel unless it was absolute necessity, some sort of disaster, or a need to move for work or something like that. Um, so in a way, recreational or work or travel writing, it's a fairly new sort of technology. Um, in a way. So why why do humans choose to travel? What do you think it is about the, the notion of travel? It's interesting because it's not for everyone. It's definitely not for everyone. But I would say, I mean, travel for trade, I think that is what propelled us off our familiar shores in the first place. Mm. Let's get on this leaky boat and see if anyone will buy our rum or our timber or something. And then throughout time, you know, there's been uh, Marco Polo, you know, um, Genghis Khan and his, you know, warriors and stuff. So it's you know, there's some really bad reasons to travel, you know, like colonisation, which is ultimately, I think, an underlying economic motivation. Um, but there's also, or there's also travel to escape. So, you know, if you're a lost soul or misfit, you know, you end up drunk at two o'clock in some bar um, in, a, in a country that you never leave. Um, but then, you know, I think there's always been like adventurers and travellers. There's been some amazing female travellers, you know, Freya Stark, who went to, I retraced her footsteps in Iran. She went to the Castle of the Assassins. Um, I got to write about that for The Guardian. That was amazing. So I think I'm just a naturally curious person. I had an exceptionally high risk appetite. And the more unfamiliar, the better. And I, you know, I did take that kind of to an extreme, like going to Iran and places like that on my own that I look back now and I think that could have ended badly. Mm. And so what is, is your risk appetite still the same as it was before? No. Has it changed? <laughs> no, I'm a, I'm a parent. Like, 
you know, that just profoundly changed me. I've got a three-year-old and a four-year-old and we are holding hands from the moment we step onto the footpath. <laughs> you know, they, you know, they, I just don't allow them to take risks, um, partly because, you know, they can't make decisions about what's risky and what's not. I'm not crazy. Like I don't get up on the slide with them. Like, you know, sometimes you see parents like accompanying their children down the slide. I want them to, you know, have the space to make their own mistakes, but I am so cautious with them. And for me, like I'm a single parent. I, if I, if I fall down sick, what's going to happen? You know, it's really like, it's quite serious stuff. So I do like, um, take my health seriously and I don't take risks with my, really with my livelihood or, um, my physical well-being. Yeah, and and how do you think about that? Like, do you th- do you kind of get excited that one day you'll you'll be able to tell your kids about all your wonderful adventures? Because it, you know, even from the countries you've mentioned so far, it's like a almost like a Disney. Ta- it'd be the best bedtime stories ever. I'm mean, like, I wish I was your three or four year old kid just <laughs> hearing you kind of even give a a turf summary of what you did. Well, it's it's funny because Claire, the smallest one, she when she naps, I write. So having kids, young kids, has been great for my writing. And Olivia, she lies on my feet like a puppy. That's what we call it while I write. So she's seeing, she's actually seeing me write the book. And now she's of an age where she's learning to write, which is really beautiful. Um, she can't read, but yeah, I hope you know I dedicated my first book to them. And you know, it's just because they've been good sleepers that I have even been able to get these books out. And I cannot wait to take them to India and places like that. And so you plan to continue doing what you do now with them when like they become a bit more age appropriate? I would love to. I would really love to. Yeah. We drive to Melbourne a couple of times a year and I always say, and they're, you know, in the back seat, I'm like, you guys are great travellers. It's going to be amazing because they are, they're, they're pretty hardy little kids. Um, so I would, I would love that, but I will probably not take the same risks with those children yep. as I did for myself. But it's a great, it's almost like a great evolution of how you write and your your art because, you know, it, it sort of follows you as a person and your own journey as well to, to, to motherhood, to parenthood and, and everything like that. Yeah. And if I can instill a love of travel in them and a sense of perspective, which I think ultimately, ultimately is what travel gives you. Uh, I would I would consider my job done. So that would be great. And then they can continue the tradition. <laughs> I love it. And so, um, I mean, a big question that's come up sort of uh, from you and your work as well, and I think the work of a lot of travelling um, journalists and writers is, what's changed with the advent of social media? How does that sort of impact upon writing, um, travel experiences, just, just about everything? It's it's really changed it. I travelled when I set off um, for one year, which actually turned into 10 years away. Um, it was 2006, so I did not have a Facebook account. I mean, it existed. I didn't sign up until afterwards. So I didn't have a phone with Wi-Fi. I just used my Nokia as an alarm. Um, so I was truly disconnected and it, you know, it was the it was the the period of internet cafes. So your hostel would have, you know, three or four computers. Such good times. Go there, and you'd send an email to your friends and family. Oh. Send it was amazing. It was so, a simpler time, wasn't it, Jess? Oh, so simple. <laughs> I would send one group an email a month, and I'd take a lot of care and enjoy writing it. But that was yeah. what I did. I'd, I'd send it once a month, and I also like I stayed in places. I stayed on an island in Laos. There was no electricity. Therefore, there was no internet. They had like one solar-powered computer. And then when I got to China, I had underestimated the language barrier 
And I was so lost. I was so lost. I could not. And I, because I entered overland from Vietnam. So I was in Nanning. There aren't hardly any expats, let alone travelers. I didn't meet anyone who spoke English. Days had passed and I hadn't told mum and dad that I'd crossed the border and I was okay. So I was getting kind of desperate to find an internet cafe. And then I was walking along the footpath and I saw like on ground level, there was like an office, which was quite unusual. And there were computers So I just went in and like using sign language was like, can I please use a computer? And one girl was so nice. She like stood up and let me use her computer. And I just banged out to mum and dad, like, I'm okay. (laughs) Um, You know, truly disconnected. And that, that is a great thing. There was no temptation to overshare or to bombard friends with photos. I felt that I was bombarding friends with photos and I'm sure I was, Mm -hmm. Um, but I didn't have the decision. Should I upload this or not? I was just, you know, and it's good. It's good to be so far from your network that you have to, you know, um, walk, walk with your own two feet. I love that. And it just makes me like reminisce about my travels in the early 2000s, like even Thailand and Vietnam and places like that where like you had to go to internet cafes, there wasn't really Facebook, you were emailing occasionally, um, phones were not smart, they were all dumb. So you had like an Ericsson or a Nokia, there were no smart watches. And I, I think in many ways, like the when I think back to those experiences, that sense of disconnection and immersion in local culture and experience um, make the memories feel a lot more vibrant than travel subsequently where you do feel this pressure to just like post this, post that, take a photo of this, take a photo of that. You know, can you relate to that? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, maybe maybe a disadvantage is the, you know, I didn't have much information. My sole source of information was Lonely Planet Guides. So I've actually re, this is 2006, (laughs) Lonely Planet China. I bought all of them that I used and that was my single source of information. I mean, I didn't book ahead for guest houses and stuff like that. So there was a degree of spontaneity that you just wouldn't get now. You know, you just wouldn't. So that led to all sorts of misadventures. But actually, as you say, they're the memories that really stand out. Hmm. So, but I also, at the same time, I didn't like, let's say I saw a temple in China, like I went traveling this week. I could take a photo of it, put it in Google, just the image, and it would come up and tell me the origins of that temple. And I'd have all that information at my fingertips. Hmm. You could even say like um, with instantaneous translation, you know, I wouldn't have had those problems in China because yep. you can use AI to translate. So in a in a sense, I think that's kind of um it's a really formative experience to be mute and to and to be completely powerless. That's mm. I think that's quite character forming. Mm. Um but at the same time, I think the ac- accessibility to information is definitely a positive thing for travelers because it means you're less ignorant, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I think it'd make a huge difference. And I, I suppose I can see the, the, the pros and cons of both in a way. Well, what stood out for you for from your travels about sort of observations or reflections on the, the nature of humans that you meet abroad and that you don't know? I had such a good experience, you know, with the kindness of strangers. I was, I met some people who were so beautiful for no reason at all, like one man that helped me across the Chinese border because I was sick and he did everything for, he bought me traditional Chinese medicine, took me out for lunch, put my bag in storage, took me to the bus. And then at the end of, you know, we spent half a day together. We couldn't speak a word in common 
he went, we were back at the bus stop and I was moving on to the next destination and he went and tapped a Western, a Western guy on the back and like sort of pushed us together and was like, here you go, like here's someone who's getting on the bus. And then he just waved and disappeared. I mean, and that, you know, that wasn't a one-off. I met so many kind people. I met scarcely any dishonest people, but I mean, everybody hustles, you know, um, definitely there's a huge industry around, you know, getting off a bus in a foreign city and someone will, you know, there's heaps of touts and that kind of thing, but not my experiences were that most people are basically honest and fair. Like if you want to do a deal, let's do business. I can help you. Um, And I, but I think also, you know, I have a saying that everyone you meet is your mirror. And I think if you arrive somewhere, you know, that's kind of arrogant, people will try and take you down a peg. Mm. And then you can have some nasty experiences. Not all of my experiences were positive, but I think overall, I think humans are just actually really fantastic people. And especially the further you go from somewhere that's a touristy place, the least touristy it is, the kinds of people become. And I think, you know, with countries like Myanmar that's now kind of sealed off from the world again, that's actually really sad because it's, as humans, we need to have contact with each other, even more when you live in a society without democracy and things like that. So mm. these countries that get a bad rap, actually the people are terrific. Yeah, so in, in a way the the countries suffer because of perceptions of people, but you really just need to go there and experience it, I suppose, there's so much of it. And just I, I guess a lot of it might be um, putting that um, the the fear aside or, you know, even that that um, saying, feel, feel the fear and do it anyway. Yeah, yeah, feel the fear and do it anyway. There was a good one I heard the other day. Um, she said, let fear get into the car with you, but don't let it drive. <laughs> I love that. And, and how important was it for you? I mean, as much as you're um, talking um, very admiringly of the, the kindness of strangers, how important was it for you to sort of keep your wits about you and to sort of have fear in the car with you or, you know, just to sort of keep your senses and wits about you that this could turn bit quite bad if I'm not careful? In all honesty, I don't think I did have my wits about me. I am very trusting. I, you know, I could have, and I did. I did end up in some scrapes. Like, you know, I took a motorbike ride through a national forest in Nepal because the bus wasn't going to the destination that I wanted to get to, and I ended up being sexually assaulted and had to spend the night in a petrol station. It could have turned out far worse than that, far worse. And what was I doing? That's that's stupid. And I always, I always give people the benefit of the doubt. And it's only until they're proven wrong. And so I do look back and almost feel kind of sick <laughs> that I didn't end up in in a serious situation. And so that's what I mean. I mean, humans are so amazing that scarcely anyone took advantage of that trust. Mm. Um, so, but I mean, I guess. You know, when it came to my possessions, if I was on a train in India, I would, you know, padlock my bag to the rack when I fell asleep. I kept my passport in a bum bag on my waist. So I wasn't completely, you know, dangling jewellery and cash and that kind of thing. But in terms of the trust I was willing to put in people, even, you know, in Pakistan, the roads are so terrible, happily sitting on those buses as they veer around cliffs. I just think, what was I doing? What was I doing? My poor <laughs> parents. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the less they know, they're better. Um, with, I mean, writing a book is just like a mammoth 
undertaking. How do you get your head around that? And did you kind of set out on this uh, long travel with the always with the plan of writing a book about your trip, or is this something you decided on afterwards? And what, what's that? What's that process like of um, having the idea to write a book and then starting about the execution, the de- de- design and execution of that? I did. I did want to write a book, and I always hoped to, but that doesn't mean that I believed that it would happen. And I had, you know, a series of rejections that at times questioned whether a book would ever see the light of day. But it was just—I mean, I self-published because I decided after probably twelve rejections that I was going to push ahead anyway. Um, and that is how I, I did it. And I also, because I'm a, I have an entrepreneurial kind of spirit, I wanted to learn about the back end of books and mm. I find that fascinating and it's a changing marketplace. So I'm really glad and I'm self-publishing the second one again and that, and I have two more books and I will do the same with those as well. So it really, if I'd not believed in myself to quite a, a quite a quite a big degree, the manuscript would still be sitting in my drawer, which is where one literary agent told me to leave it. <laughs> and, like this is so common, and I, I think I've heard um, so many stories of like uh, manuscripts being rejected like twenty nine or thirty times. I think Tim Ferriss's book, The Four Hour Workweek, was rejected twenty nine times and went on went on to be like a global um, bestseller. And you're the second author um, that's come on the podcast as a recent times has gone down the self publishing route. So um, how's it all gone? Because in a way, you have to be the author, you have to be the agent, you have to be the seller. Like, what's it, what do you learn and what's that all like? Well, it's it's funny because publishing has changed so much that those things are also applicable to traditional publishers minus the control. So if you have a, a deal, you might, I was talking to someone last week, she got an advance of $4,000 and all decisions are made for her. So the publisher carries those, those costs, but you'll then only get like a dollar or less per copy sold. Um, self-publishing is, you know, you print on demand. Um, so it's just a case. I have the formatting software. Uh, it's easier than a lot of people realize. Um, it's a learning curve, but you can invest your time as deeply as you want. And you also from a financial point of view, but it is, um, an industry that is truly flourishing. The, you can outsource all different services of the book process. So if you just want to finish your manuscript, and then make it available on all um, online retailers. You can outsource that part to it. But I loved choosing my covers. I worked with like an ex-Penguin designer, my book editor. I had two book editors. I had my launch in Melbourne and Sydney. And I I didn't find that doors were closed and that there was much snobbery just because it was self-published. I think that's so cool. And, and I think if I ever had a book in me, I'd do it your way. Very, very cool entrepreneurial classy stuff. Um, how was the response to the first book? And like after you did it, how, how have you felt about sort of sales, how it's all gone? And yeah, just, just your, um, does it make you excited about the release of your new book in early 2024, nervous or? It's interesting because expectations will always be one thing and you have to keep them in check. Um, and what you measure success as changes over time, like you become a lot more modest, you know, in if your book is still in print, after five years, you should pat yourself on the back. That means something, you know, which is very mm. different from I want to be a bestseller. Yeah. Um, I I worked really hard to get the word out and I and I did. I had, I mean, the awful thing was that the, the coup happened in Myanmar as my book was published. 
So there was an enormous amount of interest in Myanmar, um, which I had to be really careful. Like when I was on Twitter, I didn't use hashtags that were related to the coup because I, some people accuse me of, you know, trying to profiteer from a terrible ah. political situation and there's always going to be haters. I donated a dollar from every sale to the COVID relief situation, like buying oxygen bottles and things like that. I went to protests. I spoke at protests. Um, I was, you know, I had a launch in New Zealand. I was on breakfast TV there. I've had lots and lots and lots of media appearances um, with the exception of one scathing review. Um, the The response has been positive. So all I care about is readers. I do not care about you know, so-and-so big names or some kind of status. Um, I just care about readers. And if I see a review on Goodreads from someone who I don't know and they enjoyed my book and they learned something about my about Myanmar, then that to me is success. And the next book has just been so fun to relive and it is so getting to be who I am, getting to complete this, that I honestly don't mind if it just sells a couple of hundred copies. Um, it, you know, it's it's been a gift to me to get to put this out into the world when I never would have believed it. Um, but at the same time, I'm quietly confident because nostalgia is a very powerful thing. And I am writing about what has to be one of our most cherished memories. If you went backpacking, it was incredible. And I don't know a book that is this is just about backpacking. I'm not a murderer. I'm not running away from a violent partner. Um, I'm not trafficking drugs. I'm just a girl traveling through fascinating places. So I, I'm curious to see what the response will be like. Is it enough? Of course, I ask myself that all the time. Is this enough? But I, I'm so curious. I just want to find out. There's so much in that. Uh, uh, first of all, I want to say I think um, – I love books about topics that don't have to be too much. So just the idea of the focus on backpacking for me is inherently interesting. So I'm really looking forward to listening to that when it comes out. I say listening because I don't read much anymore with the young fellow. It's just too hard um, and being on the move all the time. I can get more into the system listening. Um, but yeah, so the, the, there's that very excited for your next book. Um, the other thing I was going to come back to was, yeah, Goodreads. It's, it's quite funny how, how you sort of mentioned you care about what people think but not the big opinions because without you even prompting me, um, when I was doing a bit of research on your first book, I went straight to Goodreads because that's where I like to get really neutral, kind of unbiased yeah. feedback from, from the people who are actually reading. And terrific reviews. Well done, Jess. I mean, phenomenal feedback on, on the first book and clearly you've struck a chord with people. Um, and I think some of the standout reviews sort of mentioned the authenticity and just the the feeling of being there and just really well-written and articulate. And that must give you a lot of confidence um, around sort of stepping forward and, and doing the next one too. It does and it doesn't because, of course, there's going to be a comparison. Of course, you are either going to like the first book better or the second mm, book better. Mm, mm. Probably you're not going to like them the same. And so, of course, there are going to be comparisons, whereas if it was just my first attempt at a book, there's nothing to compare me to. But sure. it's going to be a third book and a fourth book. So I just I have pretty thick skin as a journalist. Um, but if it's a resounding our home in Myanmar was better, as happens so frequently with authors, like or singers, like yeah. or actors, oh, this movie's not as good. But you know what? If it's a privilege to have a creative offering and being judged 
is actually part of that privilege. Silence for me would be unbelievably depressing. So if anyone, you know, puts the effort in to to type something, then I still consider that an indication of success that they cared enough to leave a review. So I'm just trying to manage my own expectations going into it kind of in a neutral way. Like um, I I I have no preconceived. I have honestly, I have no idea if if this is a better book than my first. I do have more confidence because I've completed the first book. So, but this, as you said, Myanmar is a very special place. I was living there for four years. I was embedded in the um, the journalism, the expat community. I had really fascinating experiences. This book is lighter um, and there's no denying that. And I'm also flitting about the world, so there's no continuity of characters except for me. So I, I wonder, I wonder what it will be like and if I've pulled it off and it is so challenging to, to all this description that you need because I'm traveling at pace so I need to very quickly get the reader into Beijing but without bogging them down in description because you've got to balance the action with description so it's it's really challenging yeah uh, look you hear that very often and you even hear authors come out and say or directors come out and say look I think this was better than my last thing or the last thing was better than this thing so look that'll always happen but um, you've been very kind and offered to donate uh, 10 audiobook versions of your uh, first book on Myanmar, which is terrific. So we'll include some details in the show notes and some very lucky listeners will get a chance to sample that. One thing that is on my mind to ask you before we wrap up is just on how you balance um, freelancing and doing your um, bit pieces and your your work um, for different publications alongside the writing process. You know, does work easily come to you as a freelancer? Do you have to pitch a lot for work? And even when you are doing that work, how do you make sure that you've got enough time to focus on your your core business, which is really writing? I work does come easily to me now after six years. In the beginning, I was spending a good portion of my week, you know, pitching, cold emailing editors and that kind of thing. And my earnings definitely reflected that. There's no way around that. I mean, I came back from overseas with zero contacts. Um, you know, I started taking gigs on Upwork and it was just because I was so determined that I wanted to be freelance that I was going to make it work. Um, and again, I'm a, I'm a hustler. So I, I do that kind of naturally. Now, you know, I used to not sleep thinking, can I pay the bills on my freelance income this month? And now if I'm not sleeping, it's, I've got a double deadline tomorrow. How am I going to, how am I going to manage this? And I've got to pick up my kids, you know, so I'm very productive because once they're picked up, it's game over for the day, right? Um, what I do to make sure that I progress with my books is I set 45 minutes um, on my phone and that is the very, very first thing I do when I start my work day. I used to get up early before my kids did and then I was like, I don't have to keep doing that. Like this is part of my business. This is not a hobby anymore. Um, so I give myself 45 minutes because if I left it in the afternoon as those deadlines are getting closer and closer, I know I'd be I'd feel too guilty to get it done. And I also work on the weekends on my book. So again, when Claire is sleeping, Saturday and Sunday, I'll do two hours a day. And um, because, you know, my my book, it has to be, it has to be ready for publication. So I have the motivation to, because Amazon, if you upload a pre-order, I learned this the first time around, if you have a pre-order and you, your manuscript is not ready, they will ban you for a year. Wow. That's for long. 
Yeah, you can't do that to customers. You just hmm. can't. You have to deliver. They'll let you change the date once. So, it, you know, once your book is locked into Amazon, that's that's real, you know. Um, so, you know, I and I thoroughly enjoy writing the book. It really is. I get into a nice state of flow and then the alarm goes off and I switch over to journalism. That's a really great uh, summary of the formula. And I personally cannot wait for your new book. I'm really looking forward to also listening to your your current audio book, which, which I promise I will do and, and I have to get on to. Um, but terrific being with you today. How can people connect with you and also learn more a bit, a bit more about your work too? Um, I love LinkedIn, so please connect with me there, Jessica Muddit. And my website, Jessica Muddit, is where you will find me as everywhere as, as well. I'm on all social media platforms except for Twitter because my account got hacked and I lost access. So I, my account sits there with nothing happening. So LinkedIn, Jessica Muddit. Fantastic. Uh, stick around. Um, very kind of you to make your offer of the free book. So we'll, we'll push that through and can't wait for your next book. Hang on a sec. We'll do a quick debrief. Thanks for being with me. Thanks, Mike. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player and why not share it with a friend or two? If you want more from your Humans of Purpose experience, become a Humans of Purpose member today through our new platform, Supercast. All you need to do is hit the link in our show notes. If you have a message to share with our audience about your brand, products or services, we have a wide variety of paid promotional packages available. Please get in touch by hitting the link in our show notes.